This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, he's done it. He's made it to 100 days. Rishi Sunak marks this landmark in uh, his premiership in number 10. Some people used to say it was a bit of an irrelevance marking 100 days, but, you know, previous experience tells us it's quite the achievement at lasting that long. We look back on uh, how he's getting on so far, his impact on public opinion. It's some exclusive YouGov polling for Times Radio uh, reveals, well, he's got quite the mountain to climb. We'll also interrogate a bit further this idea. Is it 1992 when the Tories pulled off a shock win against the Labour Party? Was it 1997? when Labour secured a massive landslide victory. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, we'll pick over the news with our columnists. The columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. Yeah, Night at the Marriott, where you can say a very good morning to India Knight. Morning, India. Morning, Matt. And we can say a very good morning to James Marriott. Morning, James. Good morning. Now, James, you're not here. You're normally here in the studio. Is it because I was rude about your outfit last week? Yeah, well, it was a bit traumatising, actually. And I just wasn't worried that I could uh, dress to impress to a suitable standard that you would uh, accept me in your studio. You haven't even got your camera on. I know. Well, the camera's broken. It's a bit of the camera's broken. It's all going wrong, actually, this morning. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, well, it's actually all because I'm terrified you'll see what I'm wearing. You'll judge me. Well, if they're not silk pyjamas, I'll be very disappointed. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, uh, earlier this week, we talked about uh, about how we should all be bragging like Americans, apparently. Shun self-deprecation and brag more. But you're not happy, James, about um, false modesty, which you think is even worse than bragging. Yes, well... Sometimes in your columns, you're going to get halfway through and basically realise that you're attacking yourself. Um, and <laughs> I've never managed that, I don't think. <laughs> I was attacking um, what... I, so I think I was attacking a specific British idea that it's terribly polite and charming of us to be so self-deprecating. And this makes us a little bit superior to you know Americans or the French who are rude and a bit more boastful. And actually, I think we have to be honest with ourselves and accept that often when you're being self-deprecating, all you're doing is when you're saying, oh, no, I'm, 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 it's, it's an awful column. God, no, I'm sure nobody read it. What you're doing is <laughs> making the person you're talking to. It's basically to. what you do every week, Joe. Exactly. Yeah. And then that, what, what you're doing is making the person you're talking to say, oh, no, it's brilliant. So all you're doing is forcing other people to do your self-congratulation for you, which I think, you know, for a nation that prides itself on its politeness is maybe not the most polite way to go on. <laughs> 
What do you think, India? Is is straightforward bragging better or worse than than false modesty? Fishing for compliments. They're both. They're both pretty awful. I hate. Um, I, I dislike American style bragging, but I really hear where James is coming from. I used to think until about I had a total sea change about three, four years ago. I used to think self-deprecation was charming and British and the opposite of bragging. But of course, as James identifies in today's column, it's 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 the opposite of all of those things. It's awful. And I particularly hate it in women. I think women are conditioned to be self-deprecating because it's considered somehow unseemly to say, yes, I'm glad you like it. You liked it. I thought it was very good too. One of my better ones or one of my best, you know, everybody goes, oh, cringe, how awful and puffed up. <laughs> but actually to go, oh, the little thing, you know, I wrote it with my bottom while doing something else. It's it's tiny and I'm so tiny and insignificant. I think it's awful. I think it's awful on every level. But I also really don't like US style, I'm a magnificent person and listen to me because I'm great. So there's a kind of happy medium. But I think it's interesting what's happened to self-deprecation because it was a kind of national characteristic for a very, 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 very long time. You know, very posh people take it to a complete extreme. You know, they say, my children are all so awful and ugly and stupid. Um, and that has stopped happening. And I think it's a really good thing. But we need to find the right balance because being too shouty about your achievements is nauseating. There's also that sort of uh, tendency to admire the plucky underdog. It's a very, very British thing. And we want people to be successful, and that, but we're not too successful. Person, uh, for some reason, I'm particularly thinking, it was like James Corden. Everyone liked him when he was like the chippy guy from Gavin and Stacey, and he did Comet Relief and all that. Oh, and now he's gone to America. Oh, he is awful. Look at him being yeah. all successful. Yeah, we hate success. We only allow people to be successful up to a certain point, and then we have to just cut them down. And it's absurd. Yeah, that's, that's true. We sort of build, build them up and knock them down. Now, we need to talk about um, somebody else who's been knocked down. Uh, now, James, I think I first became aware of your existence <laughs> with a piece that you wrote for The Times in September 2018. It said, I've been gooped. And then the, the subhead says, I, I don't actually have a vagina, but if I did, I'd definitely consider putting a jade egg in it. <laughs> <laughs> And explain what happened, James. Then we'll explain why this is back in the news. Yeah, well, um, I, I, I was really... Sometimes the sub-editors, the people who write your headlines, kind of uh, kill you a bit with the things they put in your pieces. And that one uh, caused a lot of controversy on Twitter because they have my picture above it. Um, uh, yes, I was sent to um, the Goop Shop, which is Gwyneth Paltrow's ludicrous lifestyle brand, where they were just selling all kinds of nonsense, jade crystals to improve your spirit aura, these these famous eggs that you're supposed to, um, if you have the appropriate orifice, insert into it. And um, I can't quite remember what it does, but it has some sort of beneficial effects. All this, all this total, total, total nonsense. And I actually had a whale of a time. I, I, I loved it. It was all such just absurdity and... Um, I really remember that Evan was about seven foot tall, incredibly thin, and I was about half the size uh, height-wise of everybody else there, and I felt about three times the size width-wise. Uh, I just felt, I think I've ever been so incongruous. It was the healthiest room of people I've ever been in. Were you, can we have a memory, were you the only man there? Yes, I think I almost, I almost yeah. was. It was this, I should say it was this kind of weird evening I'd say I'd call it like a cocktail party, but of course there weren't cocktails. It was all like, you know, 
the petal of a chrysanthemum floating <laughs> in a, you know, <laughs> dish of aromatic water and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, in your piece, you wrote, a jade vagina egg will set you back a hefty £65. If you can't afford that, I expect a hen's egg will work just as well, but don't make any sudden movements. <laughs> <laughs> you fondled charcoal-infused slippers. Uh, I remember the slippers, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you liked it, didn't you? Because you, you went with no, the yeah, and then you were completely converted, at least for the duration of your visit. And now... I may have overstated my conversion a little bit, but yes. And now it's shut. The, the London shop, West London shop outpost is shut after reportedly losing £1.4 million. Pounds. I mean, I could have told you that on the day it opened. <laughs> Um, now, this is your this is this is your your world far more than it is mine and James's India. You do you write every week for the Sunday Times on on beauty products and mm. the, the new. Are you surprised that, that um, selling jade eggs for sixty five pounds to pop 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 wherever you like uh, hasn't proven <laughs> to be a uh, a winning business prospect? Yeah, the thing is, there was a very interesting piece in Times Two yesterday, written by I think Harriet Walker. Um, saying that the shop may have shut, but Gwyneth has won, which is true. Lots and lots of things in Goop, both in the physical shop and um, in the Goop newsletter, that were considered, you know, that made everybody howl with laughter when um, when Gwyneth Paltrow started up the newsletter, which is a long time ago now, I think about maybe about 10 years ago, um, are now fairly commonplace. And um, that whole kind of... Um, health-obsessed, wealthy-looking, Californian, lots, you know, living in giant white rooms with lots of blonde wood and having jade eggs and drinking chrysanthemum tea and eating clean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, has really kind of trickled through to the mainstream. Um, so I'm not surprised that the shop is shut. The shop was very specifically in a very specific street in um, Notting Hill where... I would imagine that it was fairly well frequented pre-COVID, um, but you know it's a really kind of niche demographic that. So I, I don't think it had legs. But generally, the things that we found hilarious about the Goop brand are now well, not all of them. Some of them yeah. are available on your Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a good point that. Um, yeah, and in fact, James was completely converted. Um, which you know, which is why he still glows today. Yeah, um, well, it's where my my youthful, healthy yeah looks come from. Is that that's 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 why you're you're on Zoom with your camera off, isn't it? Because you're wearing yeah, it's my jade egg. It's too early in the morning yes, for jade. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's move on. I was just looking actually at James Marriott's piece about when he went to Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, Goop shop. And a comment was posted underneath from Richard Marriott. Let me reassure readers, James's chakras were well catered for throughout his childhood. Moonbeams and fairies danced about his cradle. And James replied to it, thanks, Dad. That's definitely what you want, isn't it? Your dad looking online about you putting a jade egg or a hen's egg up your bottom. Uh, let's turn our attention then to the uh, story on the front page of the Times today. British gas breaking into the homes of the vulnerable. It's an extraordinary story, this. Debt collectors being sent out to fit prepayment meters uh, on behalf of British Gas. A Times undercover reporter worked for Arvato Financial Services, which was used to pursue debts. It made rocketing energy prices and more customers falling behind with their bills. This is, is some of what they heard. Hello, it's British Gas, your gas supplier. We're here with a court warrant. Can you please open the door? I've got lots of emergency for you. 
exciting bit. I love this bit. Which bit? This bit. I love this bit. <laughs> Yeah, they're obviously enjoying themselves breaking into someone's house. Well, the owner of British Gas, Centrica, has now stopped the use of court warrants to force prepayment meters in UK households following this report. Indrian James is still with, her, with us, but let's bring in uh, Labour MP, former Cabinet Minister, uh, Hilary Benn uh, this morning. Morning, Hilary. Morning, Matt. Um, I know you've, you've been speaking in, in the Commons recently about the issue of prepayment meters. What's your reaction to, to this latest revelation? It's utterly shocking. I mean, I, I don't know what those men thought they were doing. And why did British Gas not know what people were doing on their behalf? And all credit to the Times for having exposed this, because this is a, a bigger scandal. You've got people on the lowest incomes who are struggling to pay any of their bills. And energy companies are going into their homes, fitting a prepayment meter, knowing that because people don't have money, they can't top them up. And when they can't top up the prepayment meter, they'll be sitting in the cold and the dark in the middle of winter. It is scandalous. And I think that the forced fitting of prepayment meters should stop. Do you think it should go further and just ban these prepayment meters? Because I still don't understand why they're allowed to charge more if you're on a prepayment meter, when by definition you're only being put on it because you can't afford to pay your bills at a lower rate. Well, that is the other scandal. And this has been going on for years. And it's something that I campaigned on when I was first elected to Parliament over 20 years ago. Why should those on the lowest incomes who have most trouble paying their bills pay the largest amount? But I think there's a broader principle here. You know, you go back um, about 25 years ago, we had a debate in this country about whether it should be allowed to cut people off from their water supply. And there was a huge uproar because people saw the cases, families that couldn't wash their clothes, couldn't bathe the children, people with medical conditions. And the law was changed so that you could not cut people off from their water. Why is it still allowable in this country to deny people light and warmth because they don't have enough money? And I think that is the debate we ought to be having because when you listen to the, the government and the energy companies, they say, well, we can provide emergency credit and so on and so forth. It isn't working because we know from the statistics that more and more people are self-disconnecting because the prepayment meter is there and they can't top it up. Let me bring in uh, James and India again. India, what did you make of it when you saw saw this story? And I knew these prepayment meters were bad, but I didn't realise they were literally breaking into people's homes. To fit them. Yeah, it's absolutely horrendous and absolutely shocking. Brilliant piece of uh, reporting. Um, what I think uh, is also salient is that um, these uh, activities are, are being, you know, warrants being issued by a court. Uh, probably a magistrate's court. So, and that and that these people appear to be acting within the law. So, it seems to me important also for the law, the actual law, to change. You know, you can decry the horrendous practice all you like, and it is scandalous and it is shocking. It's completely disgusting. I'm kind of nauseated by it. But the fact is, it is clearly still legal for um, representatives of British Gas debt collecting agencies to operate in this way, which is completely outrageous, completely outrageous. So the law needs to change. We can all be outraged and shocked and furious, but the actual law needs to be altered to make this not possible. James? Yeah, I mean, it's just horrible. I think the details in that piece were just awful. You know, the kids' toys around the flats, you know, the, sing the single mothers with four kids, you know, people in their late 70s, 
people with you know health conditions breaking windows to get into them in one of them yeah exactly it just makes you i don't know i just putting profit ahead of everything like that just seems utterly morally unforgivable to me i i found it very very difficult to read um hillary what because it, clearly there's an issue that everyone is everyone else is paying their bills so what do you do about you don't want people like you said to be cut off you definitely don't want people kicking your door down in order to do it but if some people are paying their bills shouldn't everyone pay their bills or is there a case for saying i don't know the government pays a certain baseline of your bills or we can't just say that the gas and electric should be free so how do you resolve this issue that prices go up everyone's struggling to pay their their bills at the moment apart from the, the very wealthy so what what can you do because you can't have a situation where some people just don't pay their bills and then it was all right because the lights and the gas will stay on well we're not talking matt about people who deliberately choose not to pay their mm. energy bills when they can perfectly well afford it that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about people on very low incomes families in vulnerable situations i mean there are guidelines that say you shouldn't be doing this anyway in the case of vulnerable families, well, what we saw in the, the Times report shows that they are not being observed. So the first thing we should do is have a moratorium, no more installation of prepayment meters this winter while this mess is sorted out. Secondly, we should bring to an end at last people on prepayment meters being charged more for their electricity and their gas uh, than other customers. And thirdly, I think we need to have a national debate. Is it acceptable in the 21st century in the sixth richest country in the world, the people should be forced to sit in the dark and the cold, families, children, elderly people, because they simply don't have enough money to top up the meter. That's the question that we've got to ask. And I think this scandal will bring the debate about it to, you know, to the forefront of public life because we need to sort it out. It simply isn't acceptable. Yeah, lots of people, I'm sure, sure will agree with that. And no doubt, and we've heard from Grant Shapps, he said he's horrified by Ofgem have uh, said they won't hesitate to take firm enforcement action. And he, I think even Centrica, the, the company behind... Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. All these horrified people, are we, are we believing that all these horrified people have absolutely no idea that this kind of thing went on? I find that really hard to believe. Well, yeah, I mean, there is, I mean, although yesterday we had the education secretary, Gillian Keegan, so she didn't know that teachers had didn't have to mm. tell head, heads if they were going on strike. I suppose that's part of what happens if you, if you reshuffle the cabinet every four weeks. Um, people don't, don't seem to know what's going on on their, um, on their patch. James Marriott and India Knight there, and of course you can read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we look back on Rishi Sunak's first 100 days. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Well, he's done it. Rishi Sunak's done it. He's made it to 100 days, which you'd think wouldn't be much of an achievement, but not everyone gets gets there. He's outlived them. He's outlived the lettuces, the apples, the pears, basically anything uh, that you might keep in your fridge. The idea, though, of judging a leader on his first 100 days goes a long, long way back, all the way back to Franklin D. Roosevelt. He passed 15 bills in the first few months of his term in office in his revolutionary New Deal, but basically didn't say anything in public (laughs) for 100 days. Only later, after he'd been in office for 100 days, uh, he addressed the nation via radio, calling on the public to take the opportunity of a little quiet thought to examine and assimilate in a mental picture the crowding events of the 100 days which have been devoted to the starting of the wheels of the New Deal. So we thought we'd take the opportunity of a little quiet thought to examine the first 100 days of Rishi Sunak in Downing Street. 100 days. A stronger NHS, better schools, safer streets, control of our borders, protecting our environment, supporting our armed forces, levelling up. I fully appreciate how hard things are. And I understand too that I have work to do to restore trust after all that has happened. All I can say is that I am not daunted. This government will have integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level. Trust is earned and I will earn yours. Well, that was 100 days ago. Rishi Sunak speaking outside Downing Street. Lots of promises he made there. But how does the public think he's living up to them? Well, we've got exclusive YouGov polling for this programme, which reveals on almost every manager the public think he's doing badly. Here to pick through the numbers for us, Patrick English is from YouGov. Patrick, um, where to begin? Let's focus on the positive, first of all. Uh, They think he's better than the last lot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Good morning, Matt. It's certainly the case that Rishi Sunak kind of had two tasks when he came into office, right? One which was to stop the 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 flow, the tide of votes away from the Conservative Party that was happening under this trust and the, and the public opinion and the political disaster of that premiership. And the other was to try and restore the Conservative Party brand a little bit more and take them back up to being competitive with Labour again. Now, you certainly could say that he succeeded in the first instance. He's restored a bit of calm. We're not seeing much of the the, the sort of the chaos that was happening under the final days of Johnson and, and indeed the Trust Premiership. But he's done really not very much at all in getting the Conservative Party back up to level footing with Labour. Now, they do tend to think he's more trustworthy. He's more competent than Johnson and 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 Truss, so he, he sort of outcompetes them there. But he struggles to to really do too much else in terms of being Johnson on things like feeling strong or feeling in control of stuff. And when we look at these policy measures, there's no sense at all that the public think that Rishi Sunak is a good prime minister doing a good job. They don't think that in the slightest. So he's got still got an uphill task, and he might have steadied the ship a little bit. But in terms of turning it around and putting it in the right direction as far as the Conservative Party are concerned, 
he's really not made too many waves in that regard at all. And on those promises he talked about, I mean, on the steps of number 10 when he first became Prime Minister and again in his New Year uh, um, address and, and list of priorities, public dealing with public sector strikes, small boats crossing the channel, mm. tackling the rising cost of living, delivering better mm. NHS services, improving the economy. It's a thumbs down on all of them. It is. It's a massive thumbs down on all of them. The, the, the public are quite clear right now, as, as they were indeed under the last days of the Johnson Premiership and throughout the Trust Premiership, the Conservative Party do not have the ideas or the solutions to deal with the problems that are facing them in their daily lives right now. And one of the crucial things about this is a lot of the, when we talk about the problems that are facing the country, these problems are very, very acute for the vast majority of the population. We're talking about a cost of living crisis. We're talking about families and individuals struggling to pay the bills coming through their door with the money in their pocket. So these are immediate problems which require immediate solutions. And there's no sense really at all from the public that the Conservative Party and Rishi Sunak right now are able to do that. And this is happening across the board. They're drawing attention to the issue of immigration and small boats. Well, the public don't think they're doing a very good job on it. So it's a quite a high risk strategy. So really, wherever you look, there are problems. There are real problems in and around uh, public opinion for the Conservative Party and Rishi Sunak right now. And on the question of uh, sort of, I suppose, this sense of inevitability, uh, mm. Will how likely is it that Rishi Sunak will be prime minister after the next election? What what do the voters in this poll say? Oh, the voters don't think so at all, uh, and the voters do not expect the Conservatives to be winning the election. Uh, they expect there to be a Labour victory of some kind. They're quite split on how big that victory will be, whether it's a hung parliament, whether it's a Labour majority, whether it's a blessed style landslide. I'm not quite sure, but. Certainly, there isn't much expectation that Rishi Sunak is going to last too much longer. And I think that's generally a reflection of the wider political context and the wider sense that the country is not going in the right direction right now. As I say, the wider sense that the public don't think the Conservatives have the solution to those problems. And so at the moment, they're looking at the Labour Party and saying, well, you know what? We don't think that Keir Starmer is fantastic. We don't think that Labour necessarily have all the answers. But they look down sight better bet right now than Conservatives do. So that's why I think a lot of them are turning that way in voting tension and a lot of them don't expect Sunak to be in the job for too much longer. And it's interesting because 13% of people, only 13% of people say it's likely that he'll be Prime mm. Minister after the next election. But even amongst people who voted Conservative in 2019, only 22% think he's going to be back yes. after the next election. Only 17% of Leave voters. You know, across yeah. the board, uh, it's really bad. And I suppose once this idea of inevitability takes hold, that's really going to be very difficult to shake that off, isn't it? Yeah, it, it becomes very, very difficult indeed. It becomes an almost entrenchment of the idea that Sunak is already a failed prime minister, even after 100 days. Now, he might point to the fact that he had a, a monstrous task, really, to, to, to stem the, the flow of votes that was going away and, and this, this, this perception that the Conservative Party was about to explode and that he's successfully done that and now his task is turning toward trying to rebuild some of that longer-term trust, those longer-term issues. But... There's, there's certainly already a sense among the public that that's just not going to happen. They simply do not trust the Conservatives. They do not trust Sunak to be able to provide the solutions to the problems which face them in their day-to-day -day life. So there is a bit of a sense of inevitability, and it's going to be a monstrous job. Not impossible, of course, a monstrous job for Sunak to turn this around. Patrick, really good to speak to you. Thank you for that. Patrick English from YouGov. If you want to have a uh, dig around in some more of the polling, I've tweeted some uh, some of the charts out, so you can have a look on my uh, Twitter account. Patrick, good to speak to you. Uh, right, uh, we continue our assessment then of Rishi Sunak's premiership with these two. CCHQ, Chorley Campaign Headquarters. Yeah, we first instigated Chorley Campaign Headquarters last summer for the first 
Tory leadership contest. Rishi Sinak versus Liz Truss. He lost, of course. She didn't last long. He took over 100 days ago. So let's let's turn our attention to our armchair generals. They're back. Philip Webster is a former political editor of The Times and joins us. Morning, Phil. Good morning. And Eleanor Goodman, former political editor at Channel 4 News. Morning, Good Eleanor. Morning. Morning. Um, you both, we spent last summer watching Rishi Sinak go up against uh, Liz Truss, try and fail and then try again and then succeeded at becoming Prime Minister. How do you think his first 100 days have gone, Eleanor? Against expectations. Against ex expectations. I mean, I, I would entirely concur with Patrick in terms of what he's <coughs> achieved. But uh, the, the overall effect, I suspect, if you actually ask the punters a, a rather unscientific question about how it's gone, they'd say the country's gone to the dogs because uh, since then and has continued to go to the dogs because of the strikes, which are, after all, the things that really affect most people. And... and inflation. You know, he has, as we've said, had achievements in terms of stabilising uh, the, the financial situation. And to a degree, he's quenched the flames of civil war in the party. But you feel they're still simmering suddenly under the uh, below the surface. Um, and he's just not getting cut through because of all these distractions. And he, he's allowed himself to be portrayed as weak both in terms of how he's made deals with the party to get through things like planning, and also, obviously, in terms of how he's handled the, the scandals that have dogged his premiership, even though you could argue that in some terms these have been uh, inherited from the past, and that is his problem, whereas John Major, who the Tories are desperately looking back to in terms of 1992, managed to establish himself as a really new prime minister, so the electorate didn't feel they actually needed an election because they already had a new government. He hasn't been able to do this because of all these voices from the past still creating distractions and problems. And also, he's shown himself, as indeed we knew from his leadership campaign, and just hearing those extracts now of him talking on the door of uh, Downing Street reminded you, he just isn't a great orator. He's a manager, and he's he's good at policy detail, but he isn't an inspirer and they need someone to inspire people at the moment. I suppose the other thing, uh, Phil, is if you're pitching yourself as the manager, uh, the slightly dull manager, you do need to be managing. And currently the, the voters are saying, well, he's not making an impact on any of the, the, the key things he's talked about. That's right. I mean, there's a sense that Yes, he manages. He works very hard. You've got this this sense of a guy working, you know, 24 hours a day, but not getting anywhere. It, and there are some similarities with 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 92 in that John Major succeeded what somebody who had become extremely unpopular because of the poll tax and the fact that she'd been there for 11 years. In this case, uh, he's succeeding two prime ministers who were very unpopular. But otherwise, the circumstances are so different. He, the the economy is in such a terrible shape now compared with how it was back in '92. And the the problem for Sunak is this inevitability question that Patrick was talking about. People actually like to say after an election that they backed the winner. And at the moment, everybody, including, I think, quite a lot, probably the most uh, majority of Conservative MPs, don't think they're going to win. 
And that's a, a terrible barrier, huge barrier to overcome if the country doesn't think you're going to win and your own party doesn't think you're going to win and your own party is spending all the time suggesting how big uh, or discussing how big uh, a majority Labour will get. Yeah. And against that background, I think he's got an almost impossible task. I entirely concur as well. I, I think one of his problems is, as you say, the expectation that they're going to lose. According to one analysis of the polls this morning, I discovered that someone called Electoral Calculus, who does yeah. what are called regressive polls, whatever they might be, um, say that there is a 94% chance that Labour will get a majority after the next election. Against that, you do have to remember that the a mountain Labour has to climb is it, enormous and that the electoral system works against them. So the kind of swing that produced a 179 uh, majority for Tony Blair would produce yeah. a much, much smaller majority for uh, Starmer. Yeah. And in a way, you've got this paradoxical situation of the two of them, you've got two essentially rather dull and detailed men <laughs> and managerial approach fighting for the electorate. But the fact is, whereas in the past it's been the Labour and the, the old days, Phil and I remember, that used to kept, weigh their leaders down by the incessant fighting. Now it's the Tories who are weighing them down. And the similarities are so much greater between 97 and 92 in the sense that uh, there is this sort of yeah, yeah. smell of decay around the Tories and the party isn't trusted. Um, and, of course, but you did have a much more inspirational Labour leader in Tony Blair than you have in Starmer. And I think Labour is very cautious about being seen as being complacent because if you look at various other analyses you do find that not many of the people who switched to the Tories or the Tory voters yeah. who people who voted Tory in the last election have actually gone straight over to Labour and it's those ones that Rishi will be trying Absolutely. to win back though yeah. you can't see how on earth he's going to do it. And always good to speak to you, Eleanor Goodman, Philip Webster from CCHQ, talking us through uh, the, uh, the 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 state of Rishi Sunak's uh, prospects ahead of the next election. So what does he need to turn things around? This week, we've been looking at both the 1992 election, when the Conservatives were expected to lose and then won, and the 1997 election, when the Conservatives were expected to lose and got thumped. While the former Conservative leader, William Haig, thinks there's still a chance that the, at the next election, it could be like... 1992 all over again. Here's what he told Times Radio earlier this week. There are some similarities there of a new prime minister, of um, being able to deal with issues that people are actually concerned about, which is what Rishi Sunak is doing, then being able to create an optimistic vision uh, for the future of the country again. The Conservatives did that in 1992, despite being in office for 13 years and despite having a recession and high inflation. Mm. And, what, and a real fiasco over the poll tax at the time. So there are some similarities with today. But I say you have to be really hungry for it, you know, at every level. The activists, the MPs, the cabinet ministers, not just the prime minister. But it's still open. I make the point that there isn't much excitement about the Labour Party. Well, Daniel Finkelstein. Uh, for obviously a friend of the show, regular on the show, and uh, also used to advise William Hague, and before that, John Major. And he disagrees with his old boss. 
Yeah, I've seen that debate, and I think it leaves out the possibility it could be worse than 1997. The biggest reason for thinking it's not like 1997 is that that Keir Starmer is not Tony Blair. But uh, the biggest thing for thinking it's worse than 1997 is the economy. In 1997, it was possible to run a campaign that Britain's booming, don't let Labour blow it. Britain will not be booming. And even that booming bit didn't work. The Conservative Party will not be able to run a campaign, obviously, on the National Health Service. And I don't think think even on the strikes... um, so you're left with thinking this rather sort of thin gruel of woke might work. And again, I don't think it will. So the only thing that the Conservative Party can rely on uh, is something that I think isn't that reliable, which is that Rishi Sunak, well, actually, you know, we could we could keep him. I think that's possible. Again, I think it's optimistic given all the other things that are going against the Conservative Party. Uh, Danny Finkelstein there. And I, also this week, I spoke to the former Conservative Party chairman, Eric Pickles. He says there's no point in even comparing the situation of the 90s if the party doesn't buck up their ideas. My message is loud and clear. It's not the the 90s. You know, don't look for political analogies. You've got to decide whether you want to win. And the only way you're going to win is if you show a degree of confidence and a degree of unity and a degree of determination. And every time a um, a backbencher, no matter how distinguished, or a minister in private says, oh, we've had it, we have no chance, then that's just a nail in the coffin. Eric Pickles speaking to me a couple of days ago. Well, now let's speak to uh, Sir Alan Duncan, uh, former Conservative minister, who, uh, well, in fact, Alan, you threw your doors open to John Major's leadership contest in, to ca- campaign, didn't you? So you, you were there right at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, that, I, my house was his headquarters, and then I sort of ran William Hague's campaign a few years later. So, uh, yep, I've been in the midst of all, all, all this for quite a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and you were first elected in 92, weren't you? I was first elected in 92 and then stood down in 2019. So 27 years of, uh, let's call it ups and downs. It wasn't all <laughs> total pain, but it was. <laughs> it had its mucky moments. Yeah. So let's, where were you on this debate then? Is is the next election going to be 1992, where a slightly dull Tory Prime Minister defies the odds and, and secures a surprise no. win? Or are we in a sort of uh, major defining election where the Labour Party uh, secure a big landslide and, and begin a long period in office? Look, I'd say a nice try to my mate William Hague. He had to cheer up the cabinet at Chequers when they had their away day. But I think I share Danny Finkelstein's logic uh, much more. Look, the thing about um, 1992 is I think you could compare it with 2019, but not with what is likely to be 2024. I mean, the thing about 92 is they'd had one change. You know, the prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, had gone. John Major came in and he cleared the decks. He tidied up the council tax, got rid of it. But he was also um, the beneficiary of some popularity about the handling of the first Gulf War when Kuwait was invaded, and he was up against Kinnock. So that, uh, I think, explains 92, because the real economic pain and division of the party had not yet set in. Likewise, in 2019, although we'd had tons of division and tons of mess, uh, the fact is Boris was very, very charismatic, and he absolutely milked uh, for the benefit of votes, uh, the Brexit issue, and he was up against Corbyn. So that explains 2019. So I think you can compare 1992 with 2019. However, what then happened in the uh, government uh, of John Major from 92 to 97, my first parliament, it is when the rot set in. You had massive European division over the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, You had uh, great economic pain with high interest rates. You had the bailing out of the exchange 
rate mechanism in uh, September 92, which essentially set the tone of his economic reputation for the next uh, four and a half years. Uh, and you have the death of John Smith and in came Tony Blair. So there's a massive change. Now, what you've got here is that although we got in with a big majority in 2019, the fact is there's been a cumulative horror of getting through, you know, a million prime ministers. Um, <laughs> God knows how many ministers. I mean, you, 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 you lose count with all the resignations as they tried to get rid of the previous prime minister. You now have a collapse of economic competence, which we were just holding on to, blaming Putin for inflation until the trust government absolutely dynamited that. And we've got massive division where you've probably got three schisms in the party, one between leave and remain, one between low tax and sound money, and a third between ideologues and pragmatists. And all of this is just meaning that the Conservative Party looks unworthy of support. And I, I, so I think that it's much closer an analogy to compare 1997 with 2024, as it's likely yeah, to yeah. be, than with 92. So I'm afraid we're really up against it. It's interesting, actually, you talked about 2019 and the similarities not, uh, with 92. Actually, you could argue the Conservatives have pulled the trick twice during this government because David Cameron defied the polls and uh, and won a, you know, gained seats and won a majority in 2015. So if you think, well, we've all, to some extent, the Conservatives have done it in 2015 and 2019, defying the polls again, uh, with you know, getting the voters to put their their trust in you to to sort things out, and then it not all panning out. Pulling that trick off a third time in one period in government, it's just a lot to expect, isn't it? Never mind all of the other things yeah. which are going on. Yeah, I mean, you you very helpfully skip over twenty seventeen, where we we, <laughs> we rather went backwards. We 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 you know we've had fifteen, seventeen, nineteen. We we've had uh, three elections uh, and a million prime ministers in in very quick succession. Uh, but I think you know you've got to go back to what Patrick was saying and and look at the polls. I mean, when you've got polls looking at you know basically fifty facing twenty five, um, I think you can assume that. That's, of course, going to close uh, ahead of the election. The question is, can it close enough? So in, in 1997, you had Labour, this is the result, at, I think, 43% and Conservatives at 31%. So you could see it close to something like that. The question is, can it close beyond that yeah. to give the Conservatives any uh, hope whatsoever? And this is a very, very big ask, in my view. So, um, I mean, I think people have rather, I think, locked in their head now that they're fed up with the Conservatives, they want to change, even though Starmer is not exciting. And I think there's a real duty on the press now to, to question uh, Keir Starmer and all his front bench and MPs about what they really think they do in government. Because unlike Tony Blair, they don't appear to have any uh, uh, platform for government, which they began to, uh, they've begun to explain to the electorate. They're thinking they can just sit there and let it land in their lap. And it's time to start asking them some very difficult questions. And on the, uh, uh, in terms of what what advice uh, you might give uh, Rishi Sunak, last autumn, I think it was at the height of, it was at the height of Boris Johnson or Liz Truss's woes. Uh, Charles Walker, one of your former colleagues of the Commons, uh, who's announced he's standing down, he said that things were so bad that actually the Conservative Party needs to sort of stop even thinking about how to, tactically gain a few more percentage points and, you know, they're not going to win the next election. But what they need to do is put, have the country in the best possible shape before it is handed over to the Labour Party to at least get some credit for having done the right thing by the country. Do you think that's where the Conservative Party should be now? 
Yeah, sort of. I mean, I, I think Rishi's got a bit of a sort of image problem in the sense that he does he speaks in terms of sort of you know, funny emphasis on his words, mock theatricals. My view is just talk to people as you would talk to someone who's standing in front of you. Keep it simple, tell it straight, and forget all these sort of you know over-packaged sort of um, almost sort of cartoon-like uh, ways of communicating. Just be yourself and go and do it. The other problem, though, is that I don't think the Conservative Party realises quite how much it's hated at the moment. Um, and one of the reasons it's hated is it's fighting old battles. You know, on the third anniversary of Brexit, we go on about getting Brexit done, but a great percentage of people w wish that Brexit hadn't happened. Look, it's been, it's gone, it's done, it's happened. You've got to look to the future, not the past. You've got to stop fighting these old battles. Similarly, some of the knuckleheads in the party just uh, intone these, you know, absolute sort of theoretical things about having to have low tax now and all this kind of stuff. Whereas actually we're a stronger party when we argue for sound money and helping poor people who can't pay their bills and having a social conscience. And what they don't realise is at a time of massive economic pain, they are making the entire Conservative Party look very selfish, very self-seeking and highly unattractive. And they've got to stop talking in that sort of language and address the issues which are most compelling for people in their daily life. And they're not doing that at the moment. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.